morning again we have the opportunity to hear one of our missionaries uh, longtime career missionary been on the field for 35 years I think it's closing in on if it's not already 35 years uh, teaches at seminary in the Ivory Coast and uh, teaches the one of the interesting things is Randy teaches Greek and Hebrew in the French language to a bunch of Africans <clears throat> and he's a native English speaker so figure out how that works but Anyway, we're delighted to have Randy here. Uh, some of you may be disappointed that Deanna is not here, but uh, we said we'll be happy to have Randy all by himself. So let's welcome Randy Harrison. Good morning. So I am a bit lonely this week, but uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, I'd rather have Deanna here because she, she's prettier than I am. She's more outgoing than I am, and she remembers your children's names. <laughs> it's a privilege to be back here again. Um, it wasn't too long ago, a year ago, we were back here. And uh, Deanna's working on her doctorate now. So uh, she comes back to the States once a year, and then she lets me come with her. Um, Anyway, she's uh, doing courses at Fuller Seminary uh, last week and this next week. And uh, so I had time to come. And uh, do I need to put this differently so that you can adjust? Okay. Um, so I visited my mother in McAllister and, then, uh, and my brother there, uh, who has recently been elected as the mayor of McAllister. Uh, so he needs your prayers just probably more than I do. Um, but it's great to be back here to see you again and to share God's word with, with you. Uh, I can tell you a little about, about what we're doing. It, it doesn't change much year after year, so I don't have a lot of new things to say. Uh, but I, I can say that uh, the war in Ivory Coast is basically over. Uh, so things have gotten back not uh, to be normal, what's that? But it's, it's better than it's ever been since I've been there. Uh, so uh, in the capital, things are running smoothly, and we're uh, seeing uh, what life can be like without war, uh, because we've been in a dicey situation since 2004 when we first went there. Um, I also would like to share a little bit about my son and his family, and I need to turn off. This morning, I want to talk about prophetic anointing. Now, maybe Gordon should be the one talking on this subject, but um, I, I've worked a lot on the subject. I've worked a lot on the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in Luke and Acts. If it's not in Luke and Acts, I haven't read it. Um, that's not true, but it, my kids say I, I only talk about Luke and Acts. So, um, prophetic anointing. There are a lot of abuses of prophecy. Uh, we've seen a lot in the Ivory Coast in the last year or so. All kinds of prophecy concerning the uh, former president who claimed to be a Christian uh, and, and how uh, uh, Ivory Coast was to be the new Israel. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, you know, Jerusalem, I think I've heard Tulsa compared to uh, Jerusalem. Well, Abidjan was compared to Jerusalem. 
There's all kinds of prophecies that people throw out there uh, and we're embarrassed by them. The church in Ivory Coast was extremely embarrassed by all that went on and all these prophecies that, that were given. Uh, of course, you know that the rapture occurred on October 21st as well, last year in 1911. Uh, at least somebody told me that, um, that it was supposed to occur on that date. Well, we can make fun of it. We can joke about it. And unfortunately, it, we tend to cultivate an attitude of um, not believing that God is going to give real prophecy. The, the unfortunate thing about having fake things happen or taking these things lightly is that it puts the brakes on for what God really wants to do. Our situation that we've worked with practically all of our lives in, um, in missions is that we have worked with groups who believe in the gifts and the power of the Spirit, but rarely see them in operation. And, um, you know, I'm not one that's particularly gifted in that way either. I, I see a, occasionally see uh, something phenomenal in my mystery, but I can probably count on my two hands the number of times that I've seen those things in, through my own ministry. Um, but yet, I believe this is something that is extremely important for our ministry, for our witness, for our churches. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, the operation of the Holy Spirit, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our midst to show that Jesus is alive. Um, this past year, I had a breakthrough in my ministry regarding these, these things. Um, uh, since 2004, I have taught classes uh, on the experiences with the Holy Spirit in Luke and Acts. Uh, it's, it's what I did my doctorate on. Um, so, but I, I, I've always been frustrated because I, I try to teach these things, but I, I'm, I'm teaching people who are not accustomed uh, to seeing the acts of the Holy Spirit in, to, in today's life. That occasionally we have miracles, occasionally we have healings and so forth, uh, but it's not something that we, they expect, and my students would be more likely to make fun of it uh, than they would be to actually seek the Lord for these things. Uh, this is an unfortunate thing, because we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But when there is so much false uh, manifestations out there, made-up things, it, it, it makes people want to draw back and, and, and not seek to see the power of the Spirit working in our lives. But in this last semester, I've, I finally managed to have a breakthrough in my class. And my students who were able to track with me through uh, Luke and Acts and, and see the, the message that's, that's going on there and see what the, the purpose of all of these experiences were in, in Luke's writing and then to compare it with their own ministries and what they're doing. And they say they cannot minister the same way they used to minister. And my, my students will just laugh about it. You know, we'll be going over a text, and, uh, and I'll, we'll look at the context of it, and, said, and some student will say, well, there goes another sermon I have to throw away. Um, there's, there's just so many of these uh, 
passages uh, that, that people want to take and, 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 and put a meaning into it without really looking at what's there. And so today I want to look at one passage and I want to look at some of the context dealing with this passage. One of my favorite sayings is the text without a context is a, you've heard this one, pretext. In other words, you're just using that text for what you want to say without really understanding what it says in that. And so I want to look at some of the context of the promise of the anointing of the Spirit. And it's in Acts chapter 2. And I will begin with verse 16. This is after the, what ha- the things that happened on the day of Pentecost. Peter is, gets up and wants to describe or explain what happened on the day of Pentecost. It says in verse 16, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Peter sees what's happening on the day of Pentecost. He remembers a passage from the Old Testament, and he says, this is it. This is the fulfillment of that passage. That promise that God made in the Old Testament is happening today. That's what Peter is saying there. Now, I trust you to be able to get that part of it. That's that's the context, the immediate context of that passage. The things I want to look at today are uh, the, uh, the context of this promise, the conceptualization of this promise, and the contextualization of this promise. If you didn't catch that, I'll come back to it. But the context of this promise, what we need to do is try to put ourselves in their shoes, either in Peter's shoes who's speaking it or in the people who's hearing what Peter has to say. And one of the problems we have is that we happen to have read the New Testament, and they had not read the New Testament. So we tend to want to put the meaning into this, the understanding into this, from all of the New Testament. And what we need to try to do is lay aside our knowledge of the New Testament and look more at our knowledge of the Old Testament and our knowledge of that time period so that we can understand uh, what they're understanding, the people who are hearing this. What are they understanding? What do they know about this? Okay, I'm going to look at uh, a little bit of, about the literary context. In other words, um, understanding the promise of the Spirit anointing in the context of Luke's purpose for writing. Why does Luke want to bring this in? And the historical context. Understanding the promise of the Spirit anointing in the context of previous understandings of Spirit anointing. First, we'll look at the literary context. Uh, you probably know the purpose of the book, books of Luke, Luke and Acts. Luke writes and he says uh, that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. 
Now I read that and I ask, why did they need to know, what did they need to know for sure? What were they not certain about? Were they not certain about the resurrection? Were they not certain about the fact that Jesus raised people from the dead, that he healed the sick, that he uh, preached the gospel? Were they not certain about these historical facts? Possibly. But I think uh, there are two themes in the books of Luke and Acts for which we can follow some reasoning, we can follow some ideas where where Luke is attempting to give his readers certainty about certain things. Um, The first of those things is that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, It's easy to understand for people in those days that Jesus was a great prophet. But it was difficult for them to understand that he was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And the other thing that's difficult for people to understand, that's kind of the first half, that's Luke right up through uh, Pentecost, is to grasp that understanding. And in, verse, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 36, it says, Therefore let all Israel be assured. Actually, in the, in the Greek, it's know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the only time in the entire two-volume work where we're to know something with certainty, using the same word that Luke used at the beginning of, of Luke. Know with certainty that Jesus, whom you crucified, is Lord and Christ, Lord and the Anointed One, the Messiah. And the second theme uh, it concerns most of the book of Acts, and that is trying to show that Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, are the chosen people of God. That was something that was also difficult to swallow. Um, and we find at the very end of the book, chapter 28, verse 28, therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Prophetic anointing is what Luke use, uses to prove both of these ideas, to demonstrate both of these ideas. Prophetic anointing, first of all, for Jesus, verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 18 and 19. Jesus proclaims himself as the Messiah. Uh, Luke chapter 4, and then in Acts 2, verses 17 and 18, we have uh, Peter who uses these anointing verses, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Pour out is the verb that you use for anointing. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Uh, This is also a prophetic anointing. What are they going to do when they get anointed? They're going to prophesy. Um, these two passages, Luke uses the things that they do, the things that Jesus did and the things that the disciples did to demonstrate that they have a prophetic anointing in, in the following passage. First of all, to show that Jesus had this anointing, that he is the Messiah, prophesied in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 61, and then he uses Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 to uh, 32, I believe it is, uh, to show that the disciples 
are this end time group that are anointed with the Spirit and that Gentiles are a part of that. Okay. To understand how this is operating, we need a little bit of historical context as well. And where do we get that? You get that from the Old Testament, and you get that from Jewish writings, at a, usually between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but some of it actually was written further, further on, but it reflects that time period and what people were thinking. Now, I'm gonna, not going to go into Jewish writings, because that would take me a long time, and it's complicated, but I am going to go into a little bit of the Old Testament. I want to read Isaiah chapter 11, the first four verses. And you're not going to see that up here, so if you look that up in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. This is a messianic passage talking about the anointed one who's going to come. Isaiah 11, 1 to 4. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The stump of Jesse, of course, is David. So it's, we're talking about a descendant of David. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Uh, one thing that you need to know from this, the breath of his lips... The word breath there is the same word for the word spirit. And what we, the image that we get from this is this anointing on the Messiah in this passage is an anointing to govern. It's an anointing to lead in governing the people. Restoration of the kingdom is what would normally be understood by this passage, the kingdom that was like David's kingdom. It's from uh, the root of Jesse. It's from David. We're talking about a David-like person who's going to rule with equity. Clear passage relating to the Messiah, but with a, 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 an understanding that Jesus did not fulfill when he came the first time. Isaiah chapter 61 is another verse, and this is the verses that uh, uh, Jesus quotes, the, at least the beginning of this. Isaiah chapter 61, and I want to read the first six verses, because we usually stop with the first two. But to understand the context of what the people hearing Jesus would have thought, we need to read a little bit further. In fact, you could, you could read for several chapters, but I've limited it to six verses there. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners. Those sound familiar, don't they? 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God, and you will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. We tend to spiritualize those verses. People reading those at the time of Christ would not have tended to spiritualize them. They would think in terms of literal fulfillment of these verses. The expected results of passages like these and many, many more in the Old Testament was an expectation of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel and the annihilation or the subjugation of Israel's enemies. That's what people were waiting for. That's what people expected of the Messiah. And when Jesus came, he didn't do all that. He didn't do what was expected. It's a problem with prophecy. Prophecy often gives us a whole lot of information, but then we try to put the particulars on it and try to decide uh, how God is going to fulfill it, and God fulfills it often in a very different manner, and he surprises us. Well, he surprised the first, first century Jews when he spoke. And he quoted the same verses in Isaiah 61 with a few changes. Luke Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19 is where Jesus quoted from this passage, Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Recovery of sight for the blind comes actually from the Greek version of this text. And we don't know where they got that from. Perhaps there wasn't another version of the text in Hebrew that they were translating. Uh, But uh, the recovery of sight for the blind comes from the Greek version. And then to release the oppressed. That actually comes from Isaiah 58.6 instead of Isaiah 61. Um, And probably this uh, is used there. it repeats the word that is translated hereafter in the text by forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, this release uh, for, for the oppressed. And then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The biggest change here is that Jesus stops right there in the middle of a sentence. He doesn't go on and say, the, and the day of vengeance, because the day of vengeance was not fulfilled in that time. And Jesus said, today... This passage is fulfilled in your hearing. The passage about preaching the gospel to the poor, about restoring the sight to the blind, that part was fulfilled, but the day of vengeance was not. The people in Jesus' day were waiting for the day of vengeance. That's what they were waiting to hear. 
so immediately after this, in Luke chapter 4, um, people are, are waiting for Jesus to, to do something, and um, they ask him, you know, why don't, why don't you do something here in Nazareth? And Jesus uh, gives them a couple examples. He gives them examples from the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And he says, now a prophet is not without honor in his own country. Uh, you know, he, uh, and, and then he gives them two examples of Gentiles. Uh, it's the uh, widow, widow in Zarephath in Sidon, the country of Sidon, and the Naaman, the Syrian, who benefited from the prophet's ministry, but not the locals. Well, this made these people a little bit angry. In fact, they wanted to kill him. Um, and uh, understandably so. You know, they're expecting the Messiah to come, and they get to rule with the Messiah and uh, wipe out all these nasty Gentiles. But instead of that, he's, Jesus is saying, hey, the Gentiles are going to benefit from this before you do. And so they're angry. Later on, uh, in chapter 7 of Luke, uh, the first 15 verses, uh, we see two, two uh, examples of uh, healing. First, there's the centurion's servant uh, who, who is healed. And this is a story that's related in a manner which would, for people who knew the story of Naaman, they would recall the story of Naaman as Luke recounts this story of uh, the widow in Zarephath. It's, uh, um, sorry, the centurion servant. And then right after that, you have a widow at at Nain whose uh, son is raised from the dead in the passage. And that would remind them of this story where Elisha uh, raised the son of the widow at Zarephath. So you got two, these same two examples where in Luke chapter 4, we find them again in Luke chapter 7, and uh, then the text tells us uh, that John, John the Baptist, heard about these things while he was in prison. And so he sends a couple of disciples to Jesus to ask him, now, are you the guy? Are you the guy I prophesied about? Or are we, do we need to wait for somebody else? John the Baptist probably, this is my interpretation of it, of course, which is the best one. Um, John the Baptist thought Jesus was going to fulfill these passages the same way everybody else thought he was going to fulfill these passages. That he was going to become the warrior king messiah who would restore the kingdom to Israel. And so he's, he's thinking, uh, I'm not in the, in, in, uh, in the kingdom right now. I'm in prison, you know. Uh, are you going to do this or not? Is this going to happen or not? And this is the response that, that Jesus gave. The people, people there understood that he was a great prophet. They said, a great prophet has arisen among us. But understanding that he's the prophet and understanding that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, are two different things. And Jesus says in uh, verses 20 and 22, John the Baptist sent us to, uh, sorry, we'll pick up the story there. John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, 
the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. That last phrase is kind of a catchphrase to remind them of this passage in Isaiah. Good news is preached to the poor. It's not the way they were expecting these verses to be fulfilled, but they sure are being fulfilled. And this is the message of Luke. You weren't expecting it to happen this way, but this is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Now let me, let's take a look at the second anointing, the anointing of the disciples prophesied in Joel chapter 2. Um, what did that look like? What did people think about when they were thinking about prophetic anointing? Uh, the, the first passage that I, I want us to remember is in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11 is the story of the 70 elders uh, that were supposed to help Moses with his work. And the, the text tells us, uh, it, this is Numbers 11, verses 25 to 29. It says, The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Uh, the, the thing uh, that I want us to look at here is the fact, that, I mean, these, these people were going to be uh, judges. They were supposed to deal with uh, the different things, that pe the problems that people were having in the community and, and decide who was right and who was wrong. But the Spirit comes on them. They need the Spirit of God to be able to do this. And when the Spirit of God comes on them, they prophesy. Now, what that means is a little difficult to know because they don't give us any details to decide what that means. Uh, but you have a, another instance like when uh, David, uh, when the Spirit of God came, sorry, Saul. When the Spirit of God came on Saul, he prophesied. And, and at one point, he prophesied in any... He's, it's like he's crazy. Uh, so it's a little difficult for us to understand in the New Testament what, what that was like. What was happening there? Is this some kind of ecstatic praise? Is this, uh, um, are, or are they actually predicting things? Uh, or is, is there some messages that they're preaching to one another? Uh, is, we, we can't really say what was happening. But it was expected that when the Spirit came on them, they would prophesy. The Spirit came on the 70 elders and they prophesied. The Spirit came on Saul and he prophesied. And this concept uh, became almost universal and such that the Jews before the time of Christ called the Spirit the Spirit of prophecy. Uh, 
Jews didn't like to say the name of God, so instead of calling it the Spirit of God, they call it the Spirit of Prophecy. Prophecy is associated with the coming of the Spirit upon the believers. And that's, that's Luke's favorite spatial term to, deal, to talk about the Spirit, Spirit coming upon. Luke, uh, Paul talks about the Spirit being in us. Luke talk, talks about the Spirit being upon us because it, it, he associates it with the idea of anointing, the idea of pouring out of the Spirit on us. This idea of the Spirit coming upon them, and then they prophesy, and then uh, Moses says, I wish that all God's people would prophesy, that all God's people would have the Spirit come upon them in this way. Joel's prophecy is the fulfillment of that wish, uh, or the continuation of that wish. And we read in Joel, let's see, I've lost my place. I could probably just look up at the screen and tell me. Yeah, there is. Joel, after this, I shall pour out my spirit on all humanity or all flesh. I'm reading from the New Jerusalem Bible. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old people shall dream dreams, and your young people see visions. Even on the slaves, men and women, shall I pour out my spirit in those days. I read from the New Jerusalem Bible because, unfortunately, some of the other translations have tried to homogenized the Old Testament text with the New Testament text and have actually changed the translation. This passage here is a promise that this anointing, this prophetic anointing, will not just be for kings and prophets and priests, but it's for all God's people, even the slaves. When we get to the New Testament it changes a little bit. When Peter quotes this passage, he makes a few changes to it. You're not allowed to do that. But in the Bible, they could do that. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 to 18, Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, that's an addition. In the original passage, it's after this. And uh, Peter wants to... Uh, uh, to clarify that Joel was talking about the last days. And the second thing he adds is, God says. He wants to clarify that this is God speaking. It's not just Joel speaking. This is God speaking. This is God's promise. It's the promise of the Father. If you look at the context, the promise of the Father that was already talked about in Luke and in Acts chapter 1 and again in Acts chapter 2, the promise of the Father is this promise in Joel. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, and that word my is not in Joel. In Joel, it's talking about the servants, the people who have positions of slaves. But in the New Testament, Peter is saying, these are the people who are servants of God. My servants both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. He adds, he wants to, don't miss this. This is important. This is, I'm going to repeat this. And they will prophesy. All of God's people 
have a, are intended to have a prophetic anointing. This was the promise of Joel. It doesn't mean we're all prophets, but we're all supposed to act like prophets. We're all supposed to do prophetic things, things that prophets did in the Old Testament. Peter looked at the day of Pentecost, and I don't know if you read the first few verses there. Does it say anywhere that they prophesied? Do you remember the text? There's no verse there that says they prophesied. It says they spoke in tongues. And that the people could understand them and, they, and that they were uh, talking about the praises of God, the greatness of God, the great things of God. But it didn't say they prophesied. But yet Peter says that's a fulfillment of this passage and they will prophesy. Um, when we look at prophecy, we often think of just the gift of prophecy. In other words, you receive a word from God for a specific time and place and purpose, and you give that word to others. I don't think this text is limiting the prophetic anointing to just prophecy. It's all the things that the Spirit empowers to perform a pr- prophetic ministry. And and so the, the disciples at this point are empowered for this prophetic-type ministry. Now, how Luke then wants to use this to show that groups of people belong to God. They're his servants. This text, by using this text and adding that little word, my, my servants, Peter is making a distinction between them that got it and them that didn't. Between the group of disciples who were just anointed with the Spirit and the group of people who are hearing them and listening to them. How do you know who God has accepted? Well, it's the ones with this prophetic anointing. It's the ones who have received the Spirit who are his servants. The others need to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And uh, he makes this distinction. This distinction continues throughout the text of Acts. Each time when we come to a new group of believers, Luke wants to point out that they have this prophetic anointing. Um, and particularly with groups of people who are normally not associated with the people of God, like the Samaritans. In chapter 8, you have the Samaritans who believe the word of God, but they say they haven't received the Spirit. So uh, Peter and John come, and they pray for them, they lay hands on them, and the Spirit comes upon them, and then there's something visible. There's something that they see. And you have later on in the house of Cornelius, as Peter is preaching with them, the Spirit comes upon them, and they begin to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Each time there is this proof, this demonstration that there's the fulfillment of the Joel passage, and that therefore these are part of the end-time community. These are the, these are the people who are God's servants. And by this way, he's giving the people certainty. Uh, I probably haven't been following this text very well, but the, I want to talk now about how Luke conceptualizes this. How does he get the picture across? The Spirit of God is invisible. 
So how do you know who has the Spirit and who does not have the Spirit? Well, in the book of Acts, it's by visible signs. Today, we wouldn't say that. Today, we would not be able to say this person has a spirit or this person does not have the spirit because we have Paul. We've read Paul, and anyone who has given their life to Christ, they have the spirit. Luke apparently did not have that understanding. Um, They understood that someone had the spirit when they saw something. First, there's visible signs of the spirit's presence. Um, When the spirit came upon Jesus, there was the dove who came down upon Jesus. When the Spirit came upon the disciples, there was a mighty wind and tongues of fire that uh, represented the Spirit. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, the place where they were, were praying was shaken, and they could, there was a visible uh, sign of the presence of the Spirit. But more than visible signs of the Spirit's presence, you have visible effects of the Spirit's presence in the life and ministry of the disciples. Speaking in tongues is the first one that we read about in the chapter 2. Um, pl- proclaiming the word of God with boldness is something. There's a, there's a verb that's used in Acts over and over again with different people. Um, I'm sorry, I can't tell you the verb right now. I know there's probably only one person in the room that would be interested in that, but um, I forgot the parhesomai, parhesiadzomai, something like that. I can't remember. Um, but anyway... Speaking the word of God with boldness. And it's repeated over and over again. And it's like the prophets of old. The prophets were not afraid to preach the word of God even when they were being persecuted and thrown into prison and so forth. And the disciples were the same. Speaking the word of God with boldness. Proclaiming the word of God with boldness. Revelations. There's words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophecy that's, that's given uh, to different individuals. Again, there's, there's healings, signs, wonders, uh, casting out evil spirits. These, these were all visible effects of the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples. Uh, uh, the second, third, and fourth uh, of these uh, visible signs correspond to the manifestations of the Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, speaking in tongues and casting out spirits. We don't find too much of that uh, in the Old Testament. There's a couple of passages that you might look at and wonder if that is the same thing or not or something similar to that, but we don't really see it in the Old Testament. This this list that you see here of the things that happen in Acts, which are uh, demonstrations of the power of the Spirit in the lives of the disciples, uh, correspond to what Paul calls the manifestations or uh, translated sometimes as the gifts of the Spirit in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, These are the manifestations of prophetic gifts, gifts that were like what the prophets did, that come from this anointing, this prophetic anointing. I don't know whether I'm, am I losing you? Are you following me? Or is is it clear? Um, then when there was an absence of these prophetic gifts, the early church, the the, the one that Luke is describing, uh, didn't recognize the presence of the Spirit. It was only when they saw these visible signs, these visible effects, they really knew that the Spirit was happening. Remember, they're not New Testament, I mean, they are New Testament Christians, but they don't have a knowledge of the New Testament. 
They don't have a knowledge of all the workings of the Holy Spirit like, like we do today. Their knowledge came from the Old Testament, and that's what happened in the Old Testament. Spirit came upon people, something happened. Something visible that they could see. And that's the way they recognize uh, the presence of the Spirit in the New Testament as well. Uh, and if there wasn't anything like that, they felt like they had to do something about it. The Samaritans, they're saved. The Samaritans, they turn to God. They're baptized. But they say, uh, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. Well, how, how, would you say that about somebody today? Would you say, yes, they believe, yes, they've come to Christ, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet? Have, has anybody here ever said that to someone? You haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. Well, I hope you haven't, because Paul would, be, would differ with you. Uh, Paul would say, yes, they have. Uh, but here they're saying they haven't received the Holy Spirit. Why? They haven't seen anything. You've got to see the proof. Uh, if the Spirit is there, he's going to do something. And so they call for uh, Peter and John to come, and they pray for them, and then they see something. Uh, in chapter 8, we don't know what they saw. It just says uh, Simon wanted to purchase this ability that the Spirit would come upon them uh, when he saw that the Spirit came upon whoever they laid hands on. So this is how it, concept, it is conceptualized in the book of Acts. There's something visible that demonstrates this prophetic anointing. Now I want to talk about contextualization in this problem. Now, contextualization just means application, but it sounds like a better word to me, and it has another C in it. So we have three C words. Context, conceptualization, and contextualization. But it's also a very good missionary word because uh, we want to contextualize the message for our people today. Here's, here's, you gotta have, there's two questions you want to ask. Uh, and this is for, uh, for, for any text of the Bible. How... Uh, does this apply to us now? And how do we apply this to us now? You didn't think that was two questions, but it is actually two questions. Uh, how does this apply to us now? Um, the thing is, uh, God does not change. But the situation does change. And God uh, always has a new message. Because as the situation changes and God doesn't change, he has to address the situation differently. Um, so that uh, we, we never apply something exactly the same way as it would have been applied in that day. You may disagree with me on that, but think about it for a while. Uh, it, there's, there's always some difference. Now, according to how much difference there is between that situation and our situation, the, the difference in application may be vast or maybe very little. So we always need to ask the question, how does this apply to us now? Uh, and, and, and then determine that from the text and from a comparison of our situation with their situation. Um, God does not change, but he adapts what he does according to the current situation. Should we expect the same types of manifestations today? Now you, you're going to answer that question, yes, uh, because you've you've learned that. You know, of course, we should expect the same types of manifestations today. 
But it is a question we need to ask. Because intuitively, we know that we're not supposed to expect, always expect the same kind of things. Like for instance, uh, how, how many of you know someone who has stoned their rebellious child? Well, that's, that's a text of scripture, isn't it? Um, that's a text of scripture that we need to apply today, right? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for instruction, for reproof, correction, uh, instruction in righteousness, so forth, right? Well, intuitively, we know that we don't want to apply that today. Uh, but I want to get beyond intuitively and just analyze a little bit how do we make those decisions? Because uh, our non-charismatic people are, are going to say, no, no, that was first century, that's not today. Now, those kind of people are getting less and less. There's a lot more people today that say, yes, those, those, we should expect those things today. Um, but there's, there's two answers. No, for some reason, God has changed how he does things. And I believe that. God does change how he does things. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, you see how God changes how he does things. And just because we have the New Testament now doesn't mean that God doesn't still change how he does things. Uh, God is not going to just, we can't just say, God did it this way then, he's going to do it exactly the same way today. Uh, or the question is, Yes, we should expect those kind of things. And if we don't see them, it's, we're the ones who changed. Either uh, we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing, or we're not doing something that should we, we should be doing in order to see the same kind of things uh, happening today. So those are the two possibilities. The, the way to answer these questions, how does this apply to us, is to look for clues in the text. Look for clues. Did the author intend for this to be something, not just a description of what was happening then, but is there some way to know that the author intended this for further than just for the people he's writing to, just to tell them what happened? And there are some clues in this text. For instance, it says, he quotes a passage that says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, that was the last days. I don't know if you know of another term or another period of time that comes after the last days. Uh, after the last days, in my mind, the only thing that comes after that is the return of Christ. And that we only understand from the New Testament. Last days means this is it. This is the end. Those last days are still happening. We are in the last days. Peter was in the last days. We are still in those last days. So this prophecy is still valid. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So that's the first clue that I see in this text. Another clue that I, I see in the context there is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, where it says, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Be my witnesses where... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That task is not completed. This, to the ends of the earth, we still got some work to do. That's why you support missionaries. Thank you. Um, so uh, that task is not completed. And we still need the equipping for that task. We still need this anointing of the Spirit. 
So you've got clues in the text that tell us um, that this, these kinds of things, these kinds of manifestations of the Spirit's power in the life and ministry of the church need to continue. If, if, if they're not in the church, then Joel 2.28 ceases to be fulfilled if we're not having those. Second question, how do we apply to this to us now? Okay, if, we, if we're decided on the fact, yes, this needs to happen, okay, how? Who's against it? Is anybody here against it? Uh, I don't think so, but how? Again, my, um, let, me, let me talk about what we should not do. These are uh, um, one of the things that uh, charismatics, those of us who carry that title around with us, uh, one of the things that's been done a lot in the charismatic movement is that we try to help God out. Uh, you know, he hasn't done enough miracles, so let's help him out a little bit. Um, uh, you know, I've, I, I've, I've heard of classes where they teach you how to prophesy. <clears throat> you know, and, you know, you, um, you um, pray and ask God to give you a prophecy, and, and then believe he's going to give you a prophecy, and then whatever comes to your mind, that's the prophecy. And uh, uh, my daughter uh, attends a school where there's some students that are there, and every year there's, there's some students who live in the same dorms. They don't go to the same schools as my daughter, but they go to a different school. And every year they get this class on how to prophesy, and every year she says, oh, no, there's going to be some more people prophesying to me. You know, and so, because they've got to go find so many people and prophesy to them because they're in this class, you know. And so they go and prophesy and tell all these things, and, and uh, um, they're producing prophecies, you know. If God doesn't give the prophecies, then let's figure out a way where we can have more prophecies. Help God out. Um, or how about healing? Boy, wouldn't we like to see more healing? Um, as I get older, I want to see more healing. Um, mine. Um, but... Um, that's got to be God. And in the charismatic movement, we've come up with ways that we can help God out. You know, healing that comes by faith. So, uh, you know, by his stripes we're healed. Uh, let's, let's not understand that as how we get healed, but let's understand that in the present tense by saying that, that God already says we're healed. You know, we, some way we can understand this. And so if God says we're healed, then we need to say we're healed. Uh, you, you realize that I'm being facetious here. Um, when you're healed, you'll know it. Uh, God doesn't just, you know, uh, expect you to be able to work it out. That's not your job. God is the one that heals. And in the charismatic movement, we've had just so much of this just kind of uh, scientism. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, power of the word, you know, okay, yeah, maybe you are coughing and you're, you're sick and maybe you have all these symptoms and so forth, but if you just say you're healed, then you're healed. Keep on saying it, and if you die next week, well, we'll know you didn't have faith. Um, but we don't need to help God out. I, I've had people tell me, I remember, you know, when everybody was having to fall in the spirit, uh, you guys saw that, you know, and man, I'm for every blessing God can give me. So if, if everybody's fallen in the spirit, okay, pray for me. 
You know, I want some powerful experience. You know, I want to, you know, knock me out, God. That's fine. Um, you know, so I'd have people pray for me. And they'd pray and they'd pray and they'd pray. And, and, and they'd get so frustrated because I wouldn't fall. Um, you know, so then they'd say, now, you know, if you feel like falling, just, just go ahead and fall. They told me that. Let's help God out. You know, if he's hadn't got his, yeah, there are some people that push too. Some push softly. Some push pretty hard. I've, I've, I've seen some things where it looked like they were going to break their neck. Uh, if God doesn't do it, then maybe we can help him out a little bit, you know? All right, that's one of the things you don't want to do is help God out. He's got to do it for him to get the glory. Uh, the other thing that we, uh, the other the opposite of that is just as bad, and that is to leave it to God. If he wants to do that, he can do it. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. If he wants to do it, he can do it. And then you totally forget about it. And don't do anything. Um, that's kind of the non-charismatic attitude, but that can also become the charismatic attitude. You know, um, it's, it's, it's too hard to think that, okay, God's not doing anything but if he wanted to, he could, you know. Um, and so we just leave it up to him. God, if you want to, I'm willing. And then the responsibility is no longer on us, but it's totally on God. But God, as far as I read my text, it's usually a cooperative type thing. So those are the ways, things not to do. Am I going too long? Um, what to do? Look for clues in the text. What does the text say? What happens? And in the text, we find repeatedly, repeatedly an emphasis on prayer. Jesus was praying when the Spirit came upon him. He's our example. Jesus taught. And he said, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The whole text that passage is talking about persevering prayer and of the woman who is going to, uh, no, the person, who, I think it's the neighbor. Let's pester the neighbor to give us bread. And it says God will give to those who ask him. And it says ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And then right after that, he'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. doesn't mean just ask him one time. And I, I know we have the Holy Spirit. So, but if we have the Holy Spirit, why does he tell us to ask? We're, we're looking at the Holy Spirit being operative in our lives. Manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep asking him. Disciples did. They were praying. It says in Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. They were persevering in prayer before the day of Pentecost. They didn't stop there. Acts chapter 4. They're, they continue to ask, give us the ability to speak your word with boldness by stretching out your hand to do signs and wonders among us. Chapter 8, again, when, when they didn't see anything happen, what did they do? They called for people, come and pray for, us, for these people. Pray for them. Prayer is the common factor that we see in the book of Acts and in Luke for seeing the work of the Holy Spirit. 
to keep on praying. Paul, and I'll finish with this because I've got to finish somewhere. Um, Paul encourages, encourages us to seek spiritual manifestations. Now, I, I put this verse up there and, and give, can we look at the next one there? Did I not have it? Yeah, there it is. Because I don't like the way this verse is usually translated. Somehow or another, they make it look like seeking love is more important than seeking gifts and, um, or seeking manifestations because uh, um, the word there is spiritual. It's the adjective, and, and, and you have to complete the word. And I think manifestations works better than gifts in, in the context. But there's two words there. Diokete uh, is the first word for seeking love. And it, it can have either a positive or a negative connotation. If it's negative, it's translated by the verb uh, to persecute. And if it's positive, it's translated by the word seek or pursue. So imagine the positive of persecuting. Uh, you know, it's a very strong word that you are to pursue, to strive for, to seek love. And then there's the second word, zelute, is also a very powerful word. Also a word that, that means to seek or pursue, and it's the word from which we get our English word, zeal. So zealously pursue spiritual manifestations. That's the way Paul puts it. Uh, now, what does this pursuit mean? In my mind, I go back to prayer because I don't, I don't know other manners to seek God, but perhaps you, you, you have some other uh, ways, fasting, um, other spiritual disciplines to seek God for these manifestations. You're a sending church. You're a church that supports missions. Uh, um, powerless missions is not very effective. Uh, we all need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Without it, our work does not get done. And so, I don't know where you're at. You know, I, I, I've been involved with this church since almost its inception. Um, and I can remember uh, lots of things that went on in this church, lots of things that per perhaps you want to forget. Um, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit has been an emphasis in this church ever since I've known. And, um, but sometimes, you know, I think you need reminding. Um, this is, it, we've sung about it this morning, we talk about it. We're, we're ready and willing to hear what God has to say to us. We're ready and willing for God to use us in, in particular manners and with spiritual gifts and so forth. Uh, but sometimes I think we can get a little lax. We can just say, we can have, begin to have the attitude, leave it to God. If God wants to do it, he'll do it. Um, God is not interested in us trying to help him out, but he is interested in our heart. Where's your heart? You know, how much of your heart are you willing to put into this thing? And I think God wants us, I know in my own life I, I struggle with this all the time because I don't, I don't see a whole lot. And I'm, I'm trying to teach my students 
uh, about the power of the Holy Spirit, and I know it's drastically and desperately needed for the ministry of my students in, in the places where they go. And, and most of my students who, who were not from Christian families came to the Lord through miracles. Uh, and I, I know this is absolutely necessary for preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so I know it's also absolutely necessary for us here today. May God bless his word. Thank you.